Good morning. Oh, hey, there's a clock at the back there now. Yes. Yeah, that's, that's, that, that is new, isn't it? That was okay. Yeah. Whoa. <laughs> Who said that? That... That is not funny. Yeah. Let me start over, shall we? Shall I? My name is Alex, and I'm the lead pastor here at Courtright, and I want to add my word of welcome to what Allison said at the beginning of the service. This morning, we are continuing our sermon series in the book of James, and we're calling the series Walk This Way, because the theme of this letter is the practice of the Christian life. And two weeks ago, we saw in the first chapter that James defines true spirituality, true religion a certain way. He says, it's looking after orphans and widows in their distress and keeping yourself from being polluted by the world. But right before that verse, where he seems to offer a complete definition, he actually says something else that contributes to what he views as being the true spiritual life. He says, those who consider themselves religious or spiritual and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongues deceive themselves and their religion is worthless. So it seems that your language and how you speak is central to a Christian life that's practiced faithfully. And James has a lot to say about that throughout his whole letter, but especially in chapter 3. And we're going to look at that chapter this morning. So let's pray before we open our Bibles. Holy Spirit, would you come among us now and would you be our teacher? We pray that, that these words we're going to read wouldn't just sit on the page or on the screen, but that, that they would go deep within us and change us. Lord, we know that Christian faith is not just a philosophy, it's not just a set of ideas, but you call us to live out a life. And Holy Spirit, you breathe that life into us. We need your words of eternal life this morning more than we need anything. And we thank you that as we come to see Jesus more and more, he promises that we will receive them. So we listen today expectantly in faith. Amen. So reading James 3 verses 1 to 17. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants them to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. 
With the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the very same mouth can come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such, quote unquote, wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. This is the word of the Lord. You sure you're thankful for that one? Yeah. That is a direct and forceful word to us, is it not? So today is the first Sunday of Lent. Now, many people associate Lent with giving things up. Anyone here giving something up for Lent? I can see a few people. Well, there's a guy who tracks what people are giving up for Lent based on Twitter data. And here's a word cloud showing his results. So the larger the word, the more often this appears in what people say they're giving up for Lent. Now, there's some predictable stuff. This is Twitter, right? So, of course, people using Twitter are going to give Twitter up. They've got, <laughs> they've got a complex about that. But then you've also got alcohol, chocolate, coffee, soda. It's an American study. We would say pop, wouldn't we? I think, yes. So these are things that are well-established that you can give up for Lent. But there's some surprising results, too. I mean, if, hold on. If you want to go back just a second, um, you can see that it's very small here, but it says potato chips. <laughs> oh, there it is. Yeah. Anyone here giving up potato chips for Lent? Well, th there's different kinds of potato chips you can give up. The next slide shows that hot Cheetos are winning the race for the potato chip of choice. Anyway, the truth about the tradition of Lent in Christian history is it's meant to go deeper than just giving something up. Really, it's a season of preparation through which we turn away from all the distractions in our lives, a time of repentance, and instead, we intentionally focus on God as we look ahead to the cross and to the empty grave on Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Now, I think James would be into Lent, but only as a window onto deeper things. James focuses us, focuses us on action always because he cares so much about our faith being real and true and all it's meant to be, that it would be life-giving for us. And in chapter 3, he's not just interested in language so that you'll give up swearing or negativity for a month and a half. No, he wants to teach us about three things that really matter. First of all, the power of language. Secondly, the danger of language. And thirdly, the hope for language. So the language, language is power, the dangers it holds out, 
and then the hope that we can find in it. The first verse here in James chapter 3 is not good news for me. It's not good news for you if you're a teacher or a professor. It says that those who teach will be judged more harshly. But it's not just the upfront teachers and preachers of the world who are implicated in this. It's, it's really everyone who has influence with their words. And all of us fall into that category. God takes language really seriously. Why does Jesus say in Matthew 12, I tell you that those who speak a certain way will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word they have spoken. Why does Jesus say that? Well, because language is powerful. In Proverbs 18, there's a verse that says, life and death are in the power of the tongue. Life and death in the power of the tongue. And James gets that across with three images here in chapter 3. First of all, a bit in the mouth of a horse, a rudder that can turn a whole ship, and a spark that starts a fire that destroys a whole forest. Your words are, are more powerful than you think, he's saying. And that goes back really to who we are and how we're designed as human beings. In Genesis 1, on the first page of the Bible, God speaks with power. And he says, among other things, let there be light. And there was light. God's very words create the universe. And our words create reality too, because we're made in the image of God. Think about your self-image for a moment. Where does it come from? It comes from words. The image you have of yourself You can think of it like this. It's an accumulation of all the verdicts, all the things that have been said about you by parents, teachers, friends over many, many years. Now, if you were to say to a child, you're stupid. Well, your word goes into that child and it has a toxic effect on them. It could affect them for many years to come. So your words have the power to shape individual lives, but words also influence community and society. Take the speech of government or the news media or big business. If you can't trust what they're saying, soon you're going to have complete civic breakdown. I recently watched the HBO series Chernobyl. Has anyone watched Chernobyl? Absolutely fantastic television. It's about the nuclear disaster that took place at the Chernobyl reactor in the Soviet Union in Ukraine, to be precise, in 1986. And the whole thing happened because communism was a system built on fear and in which everyone lied to everyone else within that system. There was no trust. So you see how words that start with individuals soon can affect a whole society. And we're not in a position in the West to point fingers either, what with all our fake news these days, right? Closer to home, if you lie to someone you're in a relationship with, that person may not know, but there's a barrier that will spring up between you and them. There's a distance that's created by that. Words can make or break friendships, and they can make or break marriages. Because words have a power that you can't take back once you've said them. 
If you stick a sword in someone and then pull it out and say, I'm sorry, well, the sword's out, but the wound's not gone, right? And if you make cutting remarks to your spouse and then you say, I'm sorry, the harm's not gone because words have a power. And so once again, Proverbs says, life and death are in the power of the tongue. Jesus wasn't exaggerating. Judgment day has already started on your careless words. And this is why the Bible never says, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me. The irony, and it's a terrible irony, is that when you hear a child singing that, that child's life is dominated by the words that adults say to them. And so it's nonsense that words can never hurt us. Here's what the Bible says. The Bible says sticks and stones may break your bones, but words can go places that sticks and stones could never go. They can go much, much deeper. They can go right into your soul. That's the power of language. At the same time, we know very well that words can also be good and beautiful, right? It's not just death that's in the power of the tongue. Life, that was God's intention. But James, as we're finding is typical of this man in his letter, wants to give us a warning first. In verse 8, he writes, The tongue is a restless evil full of deadly poison. So what kinds of words do that? Well, you have to look ahead to the end of his letter to get that answer, actually. It's not here in chapter 3. In chapter 5, James identifies two categories of poisonous words. He says that words bring death if they are unloving or untruthful. In verse 12 of that chapter, James quotes his older brother. You might remember, if you hear two weeks ago, that James is the younger brother of Jesus himself. And James says there at the end of his letter, let your yes be yes and your no be no. And that is taken right out of what Jesus teaches at the Sermon on the Mount. You know, when you go to court and you swear in a stack of Bibles, or at least they do in the movies, that you will tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help me God. Jesus says that if you're a Christian, it's like you're always under oath. Everywhere you go, and everyone you talk to. And then in verse 9 of that same chapter, he says, don't grumble against each other. And there the word grumble means to roll your eyes. Anyone roll their eyes recently? I was asking my daughter Lily, what, what is that? What, what, what is rolling your eyes? Not that Lily has ever rolled her eyes. Let me make that clear. Well, it's, it's a way of expressing frustration, annoyance, displeasure, It's passive-aggressive, but it's aggressive for sure. So poison comes in words that are untruthful and unloving. Paul puts this more positively in Ephesians 4 when he encourages us to speak the truth in love to one another. Let's think about truth first. So what's really wrong with telling a lie, right? We've all done it. One writer puts it like this. There are lies of gossip that make haters out of us. There are lies of advertising that make money out of us. There are lies of politics that make pawns out of us. 
Lies always demean, always disempower, always distort people's view of a reality so they cannot live wisely. And when we talk about lies, we're not just talking about outright falsehood. Let me be clear about that. Lies include exaggeration, strategic omission. Some of us are really clever about that. And spin. Oh, the spin in our lives. When you lie, in effect, you're creating a false reality for someone. It's like you're leading them into the darkness. In a way, you're exploiting them. But there's... Another way you can have an untruthful tongue, and that's through fearful silence. When you are afraid to tell people something they need to know because maybe you don't want to hurt their feelings or you don't want them to get mad at you, you're also keeping truth from them. That's untruthful speech as well. And then there's the second category, and that's unloving speech. Some Christians seem to think that if I proclaim the truth, this is what the Bible said, says, this is what God's will is, that it doesn't matter how I say that, but we are called to speak the truth in love. And if you speak truth without love, you're actually not even telling the truth. Someone I know posted this on social media recently. How does that strike you? Is that an invitation to talk about truth? Like, come, let us reason together. No, I don't think so. How does that make you feel when you read that? It shuts down the conversation immediately. And so I did what clearly opens the conversation and encourages healthy, mature dialogue. I quoted scripture right at that person. I quoted James chapter 1. James knows that our language cannot only be truthful. It must also be loving. And so he says, listen to one another. Be gentle with one another. Be kind. Because if you try to tell someone something they don't want to hear, if you're harsh... If you're blunt like this, what are you doing? Really, you're increasing their resistance to the truth. So, in effect, you don't really care about the truth. What you want to do is punish them, hurt them. The best way to get across the truth is to show respect. Unloving words are words that aren't really committed to truth. And so-called loving silence isn't committed to truth either. Only when your words are both truthful and loving at the same time can they give love the way God wants our language to give love. So, is there any hope for us in all of this? Yes, I think James would say that there is, but it's complicated. For one thing, the beginning and the end of this chapter seem to give us two different approaches. In verse 2, it says, if you can control your tongue, you can control your whole body, which means your whole life. So at the beginning of the chapter, James says, if you control what you say, it will shape your heart. That's the way to go, is how he starts. But if you you fast forward to the end of the chapter, verse 12 says it's about the fruit you bear. 
It's about something deeper in that what is within you comes out in the form of fruit, hopefully. That the mouth speaks out of what fills the heart. So the first approach is you control your heart by controlling your tongue. The second is you fill your heart with good things and it will change your words. Now these approaches, both of them are necessary, in fact. So let's talk about the first one, that you would control your tongue to shape your heart. Well, that's like giving negativity or swearing up for Lent. It's much harder to do than it is to say. I once heard of a discipleship exercise. It invited people to take a week, and for the course of that whole week, to not boast or defend themselves, and also to not gossip or speak negatively about someone else. You ever tried that? A week? Are you kidding me? Try to do that tomorrow morning, just tomorrow morning, 9 a.m. to 12 p.m. See how that goes. You will be amazed if you are conscious about your words and what you want to say, the temptation to speak a certain way. You will be amazed at your pride, your defensiveness, your superiority and self-righteousness. You'll be amazed at how much you need to put other people down to feel good about yourself and how much you desperately need to promote yourself. And when you're defending yourself, you won't be completely truthful. And when you're talking about others, you will tempted to not be loving. And so it's only when we realize this, it's only when we pray, as Justin prayed earlier, a prayer of confession about this, when we acknowledge this, that our words are a really bad sign often. Only then do we expose what's in our heart and position ourselves to get the help we need in all of this. The other approach to dealing with our language is we start with what fills our hearts. In Matthew 12, Jesus says, out of what fills the heart, the mouth speaks. And so he's saying that every single one of us has something in our hearts that's filling us. What do you want most out of life? What is your heart's desire? Well, if it's your reputation, if you want to be highly regarded by people, you will be tempted to put others down as you strive for that. If it's approval, if most of all you want people to like you, you'll be afraid to open your mouth and you will keep the truth from others. If you want success, whether that's defined by money or defined by family and relationships, you will be spinning and exaggerating and manipulating your way there. In the end, if what fills your heart isn't God and his love, you will find yourself speaking words that are untruthful or unloving or both. And so the hope for our language does not come from within us. It must always come from beyond us. Look at verse 6. James says that our tongue corrupts the whole person and is itself set on fire by hell. Those are really strong words. 
Is that just a rhetorical flourish? You know, preachers and writers of this kind of letter do that kind of thing, right? No, I don't think so. Because James knows that there are two kinds of fire that can power the tongue. On Pentecost, the first Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, fire from heaven came down and people received the Holy Spirit and their tongues were made new. You might remember this story. And they could speak so everyone could understand them. And what did they speak about? They spoke about what Jesus had done in the most beautiful, compelling way. Fire coming down from heaven is the opposite of Genesis 11. We read that. We studied that back in the fall. The story of the Tower of Babel, when all the people of the world came together to make a name for themselves, to build this city and a tower, to live for their own glory in a society founded on pride and power. And do you remember what happened? Their speech was confused and they fell apart. They were scattered, fragmented. Why? Because if self-interest is what's filling your heart, your speech will always go bad. Pentecost was the reversal of the curse of the Tower of Babel. When those people at the first Pentecost received the Spirit, when they saw the beauty of what Jesus had done, their hearts were filled with praise, and it healed their speech. It healed it of this poison that James talks about. How did that happen? Well, they weren't just praising God in general. They were praising him because of what he had done in Christ. In Jesus Christ, God brought truth and love together on the cross in a way that changes everything. Why did Jesus have to die? Was it because of truth or was it because of love? The answer is yes. Did he die because God is truth and God is holy and God is just and his wrath against sin must be satisfied? Yes. Or did he die because he loved us and he wanted us to be forgiven, to be made new, to be saved, and because he's so full of mercy for everyone? Yes. Jesus is the ultimate example of truth and love come together, come down, come close. But not only that, on the first Pentecost, the reason their hearts were filled with praise was that they understood what Jesus had really done for them on the cross. Do you remember what happened at the crucifixion when Jesus cried out to his father? There were no words. There was only silence. Do you know why in prisons and other places around the world, people use solitary confinement to have their way with someone they've imprisoned? Well, they do that because it's effective. They do that because solitary confinement is torture. And it's torturous because we are made in the image of God and we need words, all of us, introverts, extroverts, doesn't matter. 
where you come from, your personality. We need words like we need food. Solitary confinement is torture. And on the cross, Jesus got the ultimate cosmic solitary confinement. He got absolute silence from God his Father. That's really what we deserve for the way we are constantly abusing the amazing gift of language that God has given us. But instead, Jesus took the punishment we deserve so that we could get the good word that only he deserves. And what is that word? The father says to the son, this is my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. When you believe in Christ, the Bible says that you are adopted by him into his family, the church, and that the Holy Spirit comes into your heart and declares that you are my beloved child, in whom I am well pleased. And if that word of love and acceptance comes into the center of your being, it no longer matters what your father said about you, what your mother said about you, what your ex said about you, or what anyone else has said or may be saying about you. Because now your heart is filled with the beauty of what Jesus did for you. And now your words will be healed, they will be redeemed, because as the Holy Spirit fills you, you no longer care about your reputation the way you once did. You no longer care about approval, success. These things don't influence you the way they once did. All that comes to matter is the beauty of what Jesus did, that he took the silence we deserve So you could get that word, his word of love and acceptance planted in the center of your being. The word that says God loves you and nothing can ever separate you from his love in Jesus Christ. That is the hope of the gospel for all of us, for our language, so that we can bear the fruit of speaking life to one another. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Dear God, we thank you for language. We thank you for, for poetry, for music. We thank you for great TV. We thank you for banter, the way we can joke around with each other. We thank you that you have made us to be creative people as a reflection of your amazing heavenly creativity. God, we pray that you would come alongside us. Holy Spirit, would you make us more aware of how powerful language is. Make us more intentional about the ways we speak to each other. Not just during the season of Lent, but at all times, in all places. Lord, we want to be truthful people in what we say. We want to be loving with our words and our language. I pray that our church community would more and more reflect your passion for truth and love. 
that we would be courageous enough to speak to one another gently with a word of caution, a word of warning, a word that is risky. Maybe some of us can think of someone right now that we need to do that for, with. Holy Spirit, would you give us an opportunity? The timing has to be right to give us wisdom. And Lord, give us an openness when people do that to us. We are so proud and defensive. We hate it when people do that. And so we remain immature in the darkness. Most of all, your word speaks that truth and that love into our lives. And so we want to listen. We want to read the Bible. Spirit, we want to be a church that more and more is loving your word. Would you make it so? Lord God, we struggle with this and with so many other things. We pray today for the broken relationships that are represented in this room and well beyond it in our friendships, our families. Would you restore our hope that you are God of reconciliation, that you can open doors where we have lost hope that they could be opened? Lord, you give us peace in the midst of that conflict. Patience for your timing and your timing alone. Lord, we pray for those who are dealing with illness right now in our church and for those who are mourning the loss of loved ones. And we think of the family of Gertrude DeHaan in particular who passed away recently. Lord, would you be with them, comfort them, Lord, we pray that you would be with us as a congregation um, as we continue to go through an election of elders, go through that process. Lord, we pray that you would call the right people to serve in that way, and we pray that more and more that, that we would be leaning into one another as a church, because we're all leaders here. I pray that whether it's leadership that's practiced behind the scenes or up front, that you would bless us with the gifts that we need to be your people fully, completely committed to one another, ready to help, not eager to leave. Lord, we thank you for so many gifts in our church, for the annual meeting last week, for um, the good conversations that happened on that occasion, for the birth of Esme, to Lona and Hillary Surrey, another baby. They just keep coming, Lord. We thank you for that. Lord, we pray for peace in our individual lives, in our families, in our society. We think especially as words in the media accumulate, words like pandemic, we pray that you would protect us. We think of our brothers and sisters in Korean churches, in Chinese churches today, worshiping through the internet. Lord, would you watch over those who are susceptible, especially children and the elderly. We pray for an end to this virus. We pray for frontline workers, for healthcare workers, for doctors and science scientists and nurses and so many who are at risk. Lord, we thank you that you are faithful, God. You will not abandon us. 
Lord, in our weekly courtright mission prayer request today, we think of Anne and Andrew Douglas, and we lift them up to you as they prepare for camp this summer, and as they, they also continue to listen to you, Spirit, for their calling. Where would you have them? We know this summer it's at camp, and I pray that you would give them and their team the right ideas, a great vision for the kids that will come. Lord, may your kingdom come, may your will be done here in the city of wealth and to the ends of the earth, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.